0: Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the biggest of them all? Mr. Trump, Stephen Miller is here to see you. Ew, so gross. Send him in. Good news. I have the fifth stupidity stone for you, sir. So many stones. It's amazing, really. They talk about my tiny hands. Not tiny. I mean, it's really, they are large hands. Which one do you have? I have the DeSantis stone, my liege. Small stone, so very small, sad. They all fit. Look. Hudson's in the diamond, Rama Lama Ding Dong's ruby. Tim Scott is sort of like an onyx. Run to stupid, now just a finger meatball. They said Trump can't lip the Christie stone. It's a heavy stone because fat, but here I am doing it. Now all you need is the Haley Stone, and you can snap half the population out of existence. It snaps its fingers. Jesus! Dead Cruz, how did you get in here? It slips under the door crack. Dead, you're in the wrong multiverse. Steven, have you made the list? Yes, sir. Uh, once you snap the stupidity gauntlet, all of the Mexicans will disappear first, then uh, most of the blacks, every Muslim... Uh, baristas, professors, social workers, prosecutors, yep, prosecutors, DAs, FBI agents, uh, Hillary Clinton, anyone from a shithole country, nose breathers, Hollywood celebrities, Ls, Gs, Bs, Ts, Qs, pluses, and plus sizes, right, uh, fat people, no, just women, got it, just fat women. Okay. White crossover rap artists, Hindus, Buddhists, Chinese, Taiwanese. Solve that conflict. Yes, you should get a Nobel Peace Prize, sir. Native and Aboriginal people and, um, Tiffany Trump? I added that. What about the half-blacks like Obama? Sir, you insult me. Good man. Steven, what the hell is going on outside? Sir, we have a problem. There are multiple portals opening on the Marilago lawn. Hey, how did I get here? Jim Biden, can you hear me? Strom, is that you? Can't see you. On your left, Jim Biden. On your left, Joe. Joe, your left. Holy shnikes, I know you. Didn't we ride the train together from Scranton? Hell, I remember lots of the old strap hangers. That's what we called them off in my day. Democrats, assemble. Good to be with you, Kamala. Why, Gavin Handsome, good to be with you. Wait, where are you going? Honestly, uh, not liking our chances here. <laughs> Gotta blow with the wind. So long as it doesn't mess up my hair, <laughs> I'll be on the other side. I told you he was a traitor. You're right, Lindsay. Hey, you're not on our team. Now, why does everybody keep saying that to me? No one person should have that many stones. It is the height of inequality. It's time to take down the oligarchy. Uh, is there anyone under 80 years old that's on my side? Sure, you've got me, Chuck Schumer, and my fundraising machine. Now where the fuck are you going? Sorry, press conference. Well, looks like it's just you and me, Bernie. Not exactly, Kamala. Holy shit, is that the squad they are? Are you all ready to make a ruckus? Yeah! Are you all ready to fight for our rights? Yeah! Are you all ready to say that in the United States of America, everyone is loved, everyone deserves justice, and everyone deserves equal protection and prosperity in our country? Not your time, bitch. Holy shit. The entire DNC just stuffed AOC in a box and locked it. Let's go get him and fight for the soul of America. Uh, Mr. Biden, you're, uh... Let him stay, Steven. Come on, Sleepy Joe. Hey. Hell no. Hey, unfuckers, it's Max. Housekeeping. If you haven't checked out the new website, do it unftr.com. You'll be surprised. Number two, sign up for the newsletter. We have more than 3,000 subscribers to the free weekly newsletter already, so what the hell are you waiting for? Number three, if you haven't moved your membership yet from Buy Me a Coffee to the new platform at unftr.com, we'll get after it. And four, Billy Joel is releasing a new song on February 1st. Therefore, parts of New York City and the whole of Long Island will be closed for the day. Now, let's hop in the sack for a quickie, because I got a few things on my mind. When the world is a mean and nasty little place, finding the truth can be a little tricky. Don't go punch yourself in the face, just listen to an unpucking quickie. It's election season in America. With back-to-back wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, Donald Trump is moving toward his third GOP nomination for the presidency, setting the stage for an epic rematch between two men with nothing in common but the Oval Office. Uh, can we just share a moment before we start to say what the actual fuck is going on? I mean, we're really running this back and having a do-over, aren't we? So the difference between Trump 2016, 2020, and Trump 2024 isn't Trump. It's us. In 2016, we were all like, get the fuck out of here. Then in 2020, we were like, no, seriously, get the fuck out of here. And in 2024, you've got people on both sides being like, I don't even fucking know anymore. To find anything remotely this foobar We have to go all the way back to when Grover Cleveland barely edged out James Blaine in 1884 to become president. He beat Blaine by only 37 electoral votes and less than 60,000 in the popular vote. Fun fact, James Blaine is David Blaine's great-great-grandfather. Funner fact, that's actually not true. In 1888, Benjamin Harrison lost the popular vote but won the electoral college to oust Cleveland. Then in the next election, James B. Weaver entered the race as a populist and threw all the results into disarray. And for the first and hopefully only time in U.S. history, a president was elected to a non-consecutive term. Okay, what's your point? Well, I have a few of them. The first is that RFK Jr. could be the new James Weaver. I've said it before that I think he pulls more from Biden than he does from Trump. But what I really want to examine today is how other nations are dealing with the strongman, the wannabe dictator phenomenon. Maybe there are lessons to glean from the experiences of other countries. So in that spirit, we're going to do some globetrotting to look at three countries in two states of authoritarianism at present and one in recovery, like the U.S. Let's actually start with the recovering democracy. Our first stop is Brazil. When Jair Bolsonaro was elected president of Brazil, It felt like another wave in the tsunami of far-right wannabe dictatorships in the style of Donald Trump. The biggest so-called democracy in Latin America, the B in the brick economies, suddenly surged to the far-right in a populist wave that sought to undo the successful social and environmental programs ushered in under Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, known simply as Lula and his handpicked successors. Lula himself is in his third non-consecutive term as president, having served from 2003 to 2011, during the economic revolution in Brazil. One of the great tragedies of losing political commentator Michael Brooks was his ability to convey the importance of Lula-style social democracy to an American audience. So often, we neglect to draw on our natural and vital partnerships with Latin American nations. It's not our fault really, because the mainstream media was pretty quiet when Lula, for example, was first in power because his brand of socialism represented a true threat to capitalist structures. Now, the reality of the Lula years is kind of a mixed bag for socialists, but they're important to study both in retrospect and currently now that he's resumed duties as president. Throughout most of 2023, Brazil was expected to post modest GDP growth gains. But by the close of the year, most economic observers had revised their estimates, and it's now believed that Brazil's GDP growth was slightly more than 3 percent. This was enough to catapult the once-troubled economy from the 11th largest in the world in 2022 to the 9th in 2023. Global agencies such as the IMF and the OECD predict that this growth will slightly contract this year, but they still consider it a strong and healthy recovery. Some financial analysts appear to agree that a slowdown is inevitable because the central government is reducing stimulus and easing monetary policy. It's also believed that slow growth among the big economies such as China, the US and Germany will hamper overall growth and that the unpredictability of Argentina's new regime under President Millet could throw a monkey wrench into the Latin American economies in general. But to the point of the story, is Lula a hero or a corporatist? His big things are environmental protection and poverty reduction. So on the whole, the numbers don't look all that bad. Inflation came down to around 4.7 percent. Unemployment came down a full percentage point. And deforestation was halved from the year prior as well. So those former points won him high praise from financial observers, and the markets hit an all-time high in Brazil toward the end of the year. The latter earned him mixed praise from climate organizations who did applaud the slowdown in deforestation but noted that much of the economic growth was tied to government incentives in Brazil's agribusiness and fossil fuel industry. So carbon emissions are on the rise even though Lula has publicly stated that he's committed to the complete end to deforestation by the year 2030 and to reducing climate emissions. So mostly upside, right? I'll well, Hang tight. Let's go to the other side of the spectrum to check out the World Socialist website, which is, well, let's just say the writers there are a little less sanguine about Lula's return. Quote, in 2024, in addition to cuts in social spending due to the prospect of a worsening world economy and the implementation of the new fiscal regime, it is expected that social spending will be even further decreased with the proposed zero deficit target for the year's budget that the PT managed to get Congress to approve in December. The government has not offered wage increases this year for the vast majority of the public sector, only raises in food, health, and child care benefits, which does not include retirees. After six years of frozen wages under the Temer and Bolsonaro governments, most sectors will only receive a 4.5% increase in 2025 and 2026, which doesn't compensate even for last year's inflation. In contrast, Lula announced an increase of up to 27.48% in 2024, 2025, and 2026 for various sections of the federal police and federal highway police, which constitute a loyal base of support for Bolsonaro, end quote. So Lula seems to be doing an interesting dance of incrementalism. There are some similarities that we should pay attention to in Brazil right now. It's almost like Bernie Sanders won the election in 2020, but ran the government exactly the same as Joe Biden has. The only difference is that Bolsonaro is barred from running for president until 2030 because of the capital riots that he inspired after he lost. He took a page from Trump's playbook, but he fucked around and found out. Payback for putting Lula in jail on charges that were eventually dropped as well. There are, let's just say, different rules down there. Or maybe not. We'll see. Anyway, Lula is way more cautious than domestic leftists like to admit. On stopping deforestation he's pretty much beyond reproach. That's signature Lula shit. I should say that he differs from Biden in terms of supporting impoverished Brazilians, though. He's reinstituting some of the most popular programs from his first presidency that reduced extreme poverty by orders of magnitude. But he's taking his time reforming the economy to benefit the bulk of the working class by appeasing the bourgeois old guard, that sided with Bolsonaro while wooing large corporations with tax incentives and investments. But he's learning that when it comes to the corporate class, nothing is ever enough. His approval ratings are improving, with 55% of the population approving of Lula personally and 42% approving of his government. That doesn't sound earth shattering compared to another guy that we're gonna talk about in a few minutes, but it's a vast improvement over where he started. But these numbers are bolstered by those at the low end of the economic spectrum, despite how much time and money has gone into wooing the investor and corporate class in Brazil. Today's Brazil is very different from the one he left in 2011, with a staggering approval rating of 87% when he left office. Today's Brazil is infected with the same autocratic mind disease, like Stockholm syndrome for Bolsonaro, similar to what Trump acolytes suffer from in the United States. Brazil also has an evangelical strain running through it that means leftists can do no right. It'll be curious to see where Lula's approval ratings go if growth indeed slows when the stimulus runs out and Lula pursues a zero-deficit strategy. So I'll leave you with two things to think about before we move on. The first is that it probably takes longer to recover from an autocratic ruler than we know. I mean, before Trump, we'd have to go back to, I don't know, Andrew Jackson? Somebody get Heather Cox Richardson on the phone. Anyway, we've lived through neoliberal assholes like Nixon and Reagan and Clinton. We've had heavy-handed political figures like LBJ and FDR. Big stick-carrying loudmouths like TR. But the design of our republic really did contemplate the balance of power. It was even strong enough to keep Trump's worst instincts in check. But the most fervent and ardent right-wingers in this country got a taste, a hint of what it would be like to have a real strong man in charge. Now, sure, it was mostly rhetorical back then, but if this fucking guy can beat all 91 criminal charges against him, clear the primaries, and beat back Biden, he'll be fucking Rocky Balboa. I mean, it'll be Rocky Five, but Rocky nonetheless. Moreover, he'll have set an unbelievable precedent when he just pardons himself. And he'll have his handpicked Supreme Court in his corner with Crooked Clarence, Hansi Kavanaugh, Creepy Coney Barrett, Adolf Alito, Neil Gorsuch-Madick, and Feckless Roberts. I mean, it's beyond dystopian. The other thing to think about is how Lula is approaching this second turn at the wheel. His first two terms in the aughts were nothing short of miraculous. The economy absolutely exploded under Lula, and millions were lifted out of poverty. But his administration did benefit from his predecessor's plan to tame inflation called Plano Real, which worked over time similar to the shock therapy that Carter employed that ultimately benefited Reagan. Then there was the discovery of a massive oil field just off the coast during the oil price boom. But these were conditions that other nations experienced at the time as well. What made Lula's term special was how he invested the economic gains into special programs and social safety nets for the poor and working classes. These investments paid enormous dividends and helped supercharge Brazil's economic growth and standard of living. So, all right, let's go over to um Ah shit. Where are we going next? You go over to China, 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 you take China. 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 That's right. China. So a couple of months ago, there was a clip of Tony Blinken visibly wincing when Biden referred to President Xi Jinping as a dictator, and it went viral. And if you listen closely, you can actually hear his asshole puckering. That's because over the past few months, Tony Blinken has been pushing hard to normalize relations with China and dial back the tension between the world's two biggest economies and polluters. When it comes to U.S. foreign policy, sometimes you have to listen to what's not being said to understand where things are right now. For example, how those poor Uyghur people doing? Any update on the lab leak in Wuhan? How's everything with the supply chain? I mean, like, are we cool? In the member newsletter, I shared a link to Paul Krugman's op-ed in the New York Times this week about the slow meltdown of the Chinese economy. In it, he explains how we basically went from everyone needing to take Mandarin lessons to we'll just make everything here instead. But that's only part of the assessment, however. Krugman points to poor leadership under President Xi, which has become a popular talking point and one that's hard to verify, quite honestly. But I'll take it at face value, considering he's been criticized for what Krugman calls arbitrary interventions into the economy. So beyond Xi's heavy hand, Krugman points to low consumer spending as a percentage of GDP for a few reasons. Quote, these include financial repression, paying low interest on savings and making cheap loans to favored borrowers that holds down household income and diverts it to government controlled investment. A weak social safety net that causes families to accumulate savings to deal with possible emergencies and more, end quote. President Xi's predecessors were keen to relinquish power for fear of invoking comparisons to Mao Zedong. But in 2018, she eliminated term limits and orchestrated a third term making him the longest serving head of state in modern China and fueling the inevitable criticism that he was turning the country into a de facto dictatorship. So with the Chinese economy riding high on government stimulus and inserting itself into diplomatic relations all over the globe, she became an obvious fit for the role of boogeyman in the United States. Noted American economist Jeffrey Sachs describes the shift in attitude toward China among U.S. policymakers, writing, quote, The U.S. dusted off the old playbook to slow China's surging growth. President Barack Obama first proposed to create a new trading group with Asian countries that would exclude China. But presidential candidate Donald Trump went further, promising outright protectionism against China. After winning the 2016 election on an anti-China platform, Trump imposed unilateral tariffs on China that clearly violated World Trade Organization rules. To ensure the WTO would not rule against U.S. measures, the U.S. disabled the WTO appellate court by blocking new appointments. The Trump administration also blocked products from leading Chinese technology companies such as ZTE and Huawei and urged U.S. allies to do the same. When President Joe Biden came to office, many, including me, expected Biden to reverse or ease Trump's anti-China policies. The opposite happened. Biden doubled down, not only maintaining Trump's tariffs on China, but also signing new executive orders to limit China's access to advanced semiconductor technologies and U.S. investments." From what the Financial Times called a testy first phone call with Beijing and a standoff in 2021 in Alaska, Antony Blinken began the Biden tenure with tough talk and criticism of China's economy and nuclear aspirations. Since the decline in Chinese economic growth, the tone out of the State Department has cooled significantly. But who are we if we're not the nation fighting some existential foreign threat? Nazis? Japan? Communism? The War on Terror? China? That was the natural order of things, damn it! And now China's going the way of Japan, and our policy is left naked because we know that beneath it all, we need them as much as they need us. Our economies are inextricably linked at this point. So in Xi Jinping, we have a strong man in decline, having poured the Chinese treasury into ghost cities, support for developing nations, and a housing market bubble. Now we understand what happens when an economy overheats and could offer some advice to Xi in this time of need. First off, the people get restless— in many cases, they take to the streets. Not a good look for a despot. Secondly, trading partners become a little wary and look elsewhere for opportunities, creating a vicious cycle that can turn growth negative quickly. In democracies, the release valve for economic pressures like this is free and fair elections, something China doesn't have. So the big takeaway and concern here is that she begins to take extraordinary measures to hold power and authority. And we have a little insight into what that means as well. When authoritarian figures have their backs to the wall, they call in the special teams unit to run one very specific play, otherwise known as the military. Maybe that's why Blinken's bluster has cooled a bit. I mean, the last thing the Biden team needs right now is an agitated dictator with an itchy trigger finger and 1.4 billion reasons to pull it. As for Xi Jinping, he'll be longing for the days that he was as trusted and beloved As this next guy. We are home to all faiths in the world and we celebrate all of them. All right, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this guy today because we're teeing him up for future episodes. But when we talk about popular strongmen in the world, there is no question that Narendra Modi has the hot hand. There was a time when Modi wasn't even allowed to travel to the United States because he was suspected of being a violent Hindu nationalist responsible for violence towards Muslims. Fast forward to 2023 and he's addressing the US Congress and currently enjoys, get this, a 76% approval rating in India. He's the most popular leader in the world. Now the key to Modi's popularity is twofold. First off, the macroeconomic optics look great and give the people of India a sense that they are indeed playing a winning hand. India is now the fifth largest economy in the world, and in 2023, it officially became the most populous country, surpassing China. And look, growth is growth, so it makes sense from the outside why this might be the case. But inside India, the economic picture is a little more murky. India remains one of the most unequal countries in the world. According to Oxfam, quote, the top 10% of the Indian population holds 77% of the total national wealth. 73% of the wealth generated in 2017 went to the richest 1%, while 670 million Indians who comprise the poorest half of the population saw only a 1% increase in their wealth, end quote. So why would a country with such a significant wealth gap give Modi the highest approval ratings of any leader on the planet. One of the most visible and highly touted projects that was just unveiled this month offers some insight. As reported in NBC this month, quote, India came to a halt Monday as Prime Minister Narendra Modi presided over the opening of a grand Hindu temple on a contested holy site that has become the symbol of religious tensions in the world's largest democracy. The 217 million Ram Mandir honors Lord Ram, the most revered deity in Hinduism, and is transforming Ayodhya, a city of about 3 million people in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, into a tourist hub that officials hope will be a Hindu version of the Vatican, end quote. Virtually all of India came to a halt, including the stock market, just to mark the occasion of the temple dedication by Prime Minister Modi. But, as Al Jazeera reports... Quote, For many among India's 200 million Muslims, the state-sponsored pomp and ceremony around the temple's launch is the latest in a series of painful realizations that especially since Modi took office in 2014, the democracy that they call home no longer appears to care about them. End quote. This is a significant part of Modi's success among the people. See, Modi has proven deft in showing a soft side toward the Hindu people while preserving a veil of religious devotion that has endeared him to many. Essentially, he's pursuing a classic neoliberal free market economic policy mixed with a healthy dose of ethnic nationalism. Despite the presence of 200 million Muslims within its borders, many Muslim Indians feel increasingly marginalized. India's incredibly close relationship with the Netanyahu administration in Israel has also given Muslims in India and neighboring nations cause for concern that tensions may widen beyond internal conflicts in India. Alright, so what have we learned? Well, strong men have always made for popular figures throughout history. Even in the post-Enlightenment world that saw the death of monarchical rule in most continents, strongmen often rose up during troubled times to wrest control. The prospect of a second term, of an emboldened Trump who beat the rap 91 times, and promised to only take revenge on his enemies as a dictator on day one of his administration, is harrowing. The United States has been responsible for atrocities throughout the world, but It has maintained a facade of decency and democracy domestically since the Civil War. I say facade because of the unspeakable oppression of marginalized groups that has always existed. But a no-holds-barred Trump holds the prospect of something different from anything that we've experienced, at least in our lifetimes. And the reason we, as a nation, are even contemplating his return is because we too have had a taste of autocracy, a hint of authoritarianism. And there's a bit of, I wonder just how far this will go, curiosity among his supporters for sure, but even among those who are disappointed in Biden. Lula was once the most popular public figure in the world. But because Brazil's elite got a taste of dictatorship under Bolsonaro, and the bourgeoisie lived to tell about it, it's now emblazoned on their collective subconscious. And so Lula struggles to reach his former heights, all the while making concessions to a subset of the population that will never really accept him. Xi Jinping is entering wildcard territory as he realizes the limitations of unlimited spending set against declining birth rates and a contracting economy. Would-be dictators looking to hold on to power make really bad decisions. It's little wonder why Blinken and company have done an about-face and flinched when Biden went off script and forgot that we're supposed to be friends again. When Trump was president the first time around, Narendra Modi went out of his way to praise the Donald and develop a close relationship with him. And while it paid very few dividends for Modi at the time, the Donald will be walking into a vastly different world and may very well look to cozy up to the very popular Modi. And like Modi, Trump has the ability to leverage evangelical support, even though it's far less in sheer size, ...to what Modi enjoys. The shared playbooks of strongmen and dictators... ...are remarkably transparent when viewed from the outside. But when it unfolds in front of one's eyes... ...it's a little more difficult to see. Couldn't happen here. Well, those aren't real democracies. We have checks and balances, structures and systems. No one person is above the law in the United States. Right? Right? Right?